Wow. I tell you, I just finished uh, uh, Sunday school because Jonah was sick. I had to be ready in season and out of season to preach the word and got to go through the gospel uh, with the deaf this morning. And that was just so encouraging. Uh, I love those people. I love you. Some of you are not in the room. We're in the other room. A lot of them will watch on the video in there. I just love them so much. We merged with the deaf about um, two and a half years ago. One of the things about uh, deaf ministry in a church is often uh, they are kind of the outcasts. They're kind of put off to the side. And, you know, they have their little interpreter over on the side and that's it. Um, and when we merged, they were about the same size as we were, um, the hearing, that is. And we made a point to, to put an interpreter right next to me uh, for the purpose of saying, you can sit anywhere in the congregation, anywhere in the sanctuary, because we love you. You are just as important to us and just as important to this body as the hearing are. And, you know, by God's providence, the hearing have grown and the deaf congregation hasn't. And I have to confess to you, I, I grieve to a degree how just in sheer numbers it's causing them to kind of be pushed to the side. And I want to challenge everybody in this room to look outside yourself. I want you to go find a deaf person and say hi. Hi. And learn how to spell your name and pray for them. Pray for them. And get their name and pray for them. Let's love them. Okay? I don't want them to just be a side note in our church. They are a part of our body, and I think we need to work towards that. I wish you could have been in the deaf service today. It was just so encouraging going through the gospel with them and seeing their eyes light up and them ask questions. And it's just, it's great. And they're having an impact in in the deaf community in the area. So I, I just, I want you to pray for them, okay? And I want you to reach out to them. And I know it's uncomfortable. And you say, I can't, I can't communicate. Well, you can do this and you can learn how to spell your name. I promise. Okay? And if you want, I can even help you with the spelling of the name or one of our interpreters can. That's one of the reasons why our interpreter is right next to us is we just want them to feel a part of the body. All right. That was just for free. Uh, Luke 22. Take your Bibles. Luke 22. The Bible is a book that we could never plumb the depths of its glory. I'm convinced I could study this book for a thousand years and never reach the bottom of it when it comes to the revelation of God's glory. When I sit down to write these sermons during the week, and usually on Saturday is when I write, I've often been meditating on the truth and reading from various sources on my particular passage all week. And and folks, so I, I sit down to write with a full mind of God's glory. And then I start writing. Folks, there are times when I feel as though I could type for hours and never begin to scratch 
the passage that I'm preaching on. I've often come to you on Sunday morning thinking this, what in the world am I going to leave out? What am I going to do? I have so much to tell you about the glory of God. And somehow I have to boil it down to 45 minutes to an hour. It's impossible. It's an impossible task. Folks, I I want to challenge you on something. What you hear from a sermon from John MacArthur, John Piper, or read from a sermon from Edwards or Calvin or Luther is often only a small amount of what they saw in their study and what they learned in that study that week. If you really, really want to know the glory of God, it's not found in only listening to sermons. My goal, ultimately, here, every Sunday morning, is to give you just a small glimpse of the glory of what I saw in my study. I'm trying to give you just a small little snippet of what I saw. And I want to whet your appetite for studying the Bible. I want you to crave to know more. That's my goal. It's not my job to be your full revelation of God. Do you understand that? I give you I give you that much of what you should get in a week. And by the way, it's not, okay, I'm going to listen to a bunch more sermons online. No, study the Bible. Seek to know God yourself in the Word of God. For it is glorious. It's filled with glory. Listen to me closely, beloved. If the extent of your Bible study is me and even a few extra sermons in the week, you're missing out on a huge amount of joy and satisfaction for your souls. I'm convinced that the bulk of our problem as believers in our culture is not whether we hear enough sermons. I believe the problem is we rely only on those people that preach the sermons to find our joy. There's the problem. We wait for the preacher to mine the goal for us instead of enjoying the process of digging ourselves. I'm tempted to just sit down and say, go study the passage. That'd be a wild sermon, wouldn't it? See you next week. Go spend some time in your Bibles. Again, beloved, in an hour I cannot give you only or all that I found. But by God's grace, I'm going to try to give you a little bit of a taste. So today we continue the 24 hours before Jesus was crucified. Today we're going to see God as a great redeeming God. We're going to see God as a great redeeming God who is and who was and will always be about delivering His own 
Our passage breaks down into two main sections. There's the preparation for the Passover meal in verses 7 to 13, and then the participation in the Passover meal in verses 14 to 20. We covered the preparation for the meal already a little bit, but I'm going to go over it just a little bit more because I found another nugget. So we're going to cover that, and then we'll go on to the next section. Let's look at the preparation for the Passover meal first. Then came the first day of the unleavened bread at which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Again, we covered this last week, the miraculous events of the preparation for the Passover meal. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that Jesus revealed his lordship in the events in verses 7 through 13. We saw Jesus once again was willfully laying down his own life and he was not duped or tricked into his death, that he was sovereign even in the preparation of this meal. Jesus showed in this preparation of events that he knew the details about the events in the future like only God could know. Jesus showed his disciples that he was sovereign even over the events of getting the place to meet for the upper room. The details are shocking, aren't they? And Peter and John would have been well aware of His glory as the events unfolded. When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house. And can you imagine when they first saw that guy carrying a pitcher of water? Oh, there he is. Okay, he's turning around. He's going to that house. I'm following that man. Wow. This is amazing. Why did Jesus say, go in, why didn't, by the way, why didn't Jesus say, go to the third house on the road and in this guy's, this one guy's house and give the name of the guy? Because, I mean, he knew that too, didn't he? He knew exactly what house and where it was located and he knew the guy's name, probably that owned it, the owner. Go to so-and-so's house. It's the third house on the fourth road you know, you know where it is, and tell them right where to go. Why didn't he say it that way? Well, folks, listen. Somebody else was around. Judas was there. See, if he would have said, go to this house at this place and that name, Judas would have had them at that house, at that place. In the city. And he wouldn't have been able to celebrate the Passover meal with them. And he earnestly desires to have the Passover meal with them, as he says. Ladies and gentlemen, it was perfect. That would have been the perfect place for him to be captured. Instead, he words it in a way that only the disciples would have known, only those two. And they would have stayed there until they showed up later, at night. Judas would have had no idea that that was where it was going to unfold. Isn't that neat? It's as if 
Betrayer, I know. I know who you are. And I know where I'm going. And I'm going to be betrayed when I say I'm going to be betrayed. And in the middle of the meal, he says, okay, do what you're supposed to do. Now, go do it. Because I'm sovereign. Isn't this glorious? Do you realize that God is the same today? He's this way now. These truths in the scriptures, they're like this. Why? Listen, folks. God orchestrated that the two disciples would do it this way so that he could have the upper room and he could have this historic meeting so that Jesus could reveal who he was in that meal. Now think about this for a second. Why? Why? Well, because Jesus knew all that that meal had in store for it. Do you understand? He understood that this was the culmination of everything. All the way back to Moses. All the way back to the start of the Passover meal. And all the way future to the kingdom, as we will see. He knew all of that meal was going to be like this giant revelation of himself. So what did he do? He said, I'm going to protect this meal and I'm going to show you myself. And I'm going to do it in ways you don't even know that are going on. Judas wants to betray me. They didn't know this. The disciples were clueless. He knew it. And he has it all orchestrated so he can have that meal, so he can reveal his glory to them. Now, what's the application for us? God works the same way with his disciples today. Do you understand, ladies and gentlemen, that where you are today and what is happening in your life and the little small events that are happening in your life, all of these things are so you will see the glory of Christ and celebrate and rejoice and be satisfied with Him. Every event, all of these events, He's working all things together for our good and His glory so we can know Him more. Do you know why you're here today? Because God orchestrated for you to be here today. Every single person in the room, all of you, even the visitors, you say, I was invited by a friend. God orchestrated that. You're telling me all of this is to show God's glory to me? Yes, isn't that glorious? What a good God we serve. Isn't he good? Jesus reveals in this meal and through the events of the preparation, he is sovereign and he is shrewd. He is wise and he is all-knowing. And this encourages me that the Lord works in my life the same way to reveal himself to me. Oh, isn't that good? He works despite evil to reveal himself more and more to me. Now, I admit, we don't always see his hand of protection. But just like Jesus did everything in order to reveal his great redeeming work to his disciples, Jesus is continually working behind the scenes in things that you don't see. Brenda and I were talking about this the other day and just thinking about this. How many times do you think that God protected us? You ever gotten angry because you're running a little bit late? 
and something happens, and then you get on the road and you're driving along and you see a big accident. Man, why did that happen? Because God is protecting and working all to show you his glory. These events are for him, to show you him. Isn't that good news? Wow, why does he love us this much? Why? Because he's so good. What is God's purpose for the life of the believer? He wants us to know him more. That's what he wants. Why did he earnestly desire to eat that meal with them? So they could know him more. He wanted to show him them his glory. And what's so cool about this is, is that he's in the moment before he's going to die. Stop for a second. If you knew you were going to be beaten to death, beaten and having, having your insides hanging out the next day, and you knew how detailed it was and how bad it was going to be, would you be thinking, Oh, I can't wait to eat this meal tonight so I can show them my glory. No, we'd be thinking, get me out of here. Let's go to a different city. This city hates me. The people are going to kill me in this city tomorrow night. I'm going to be that roasted lamb. In a sense. And what's he do? He says, no, I'm going to prepare it all so that I'm at a meal in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover so you can see me and know what I'm about. Wow, what a God we serve. Isn't he good? We see next that as Jesus began to wrap up the evening's event, he tells Judas, go and do what he he intended to do, but we're going to look a little bit now at the at the per- participation in the Passover meal. And we're going to see some really deep, neat things. And I, I would challenge you, some of you are probably going to say, oh, I'm not sure about that, and that's okay. Study your Bibles. That's okay. This is where I land, and I see some things here, and I hope I'm right, and I'm praying I'm right, and I'm seeking the Lord, and I think it's good. So let's dig in and look at it. All right? The participation in the Passover meal. Let's look. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That little phrase is a catchy one. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some of the bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let me tell you right there, in that little section, I could probably spend two weeks talking to you every day for seven hours a day. There's like loaded stuff in this little that little phrase. And somehow I gotta get it to you in thirty minutes. Here we go. This Passover meal. 
was especially important to Jesus. We see in verse 15, he stated, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus earnestly desired to eat the Passover with his apostles. The wording here is emphatic. It could literally be, I eagerly desire with a great passion to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I think it's interesting to me that Jesus says he desired to eat the Passover meal. You see that? Passover meal with him. He didn't say, I earnestly desire to start the Lord's Supper with you and eat it with you. He didn't say that. He said, I earnestly desire to eat the Passover meal with you. Why? I mean, wasn't the Passover coming to an end? Was the Passover coming to an end? Oh, you out there. Is the Passover coming to an end or not? Yes. Are you sure? Are you positive? Does the verses say that it has come to an end? What's the big deal? Jesus obviously knew the great significance of this meal. At this particular Passover meal, there was a great revelation of Jesus here. Jesus desired to eat this meal with them because there was an old revelation of himself in the meal, a new revelation of himself in the meal, and a future revelation of himself in the meal. That's a wild thought. I want you to think about it, but all of that is in that little phrase found in verse 16. Notice in verse 16 it says, For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, this is confusing. I have to admit, the first several times I read this, I was like, what? Eat it? Eat what? What's the it there? The Passover meal. Until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What? And he's going to eat it again, it's implied. I shall never again eat what? The Passover meal. Again, until it's in fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Wait a second, I thought the Passover was done. Right? We're not going to eat the Passover meal again, are we? Anybody in here going to eat the Passover meal again? Nobody? Maybe? He is. If that's what it says, is it? doesn't it say that? Does it say that? It does appear to be that way, doesn't it? Kind of strange, isn't it? Are you confused? Are you as confused as I was? I thought the Passover's done. I mean, come on. He fulfills it, he dies, and that's done. It's over, right? No, but I think right here he is pointing to this past, present, and future reality of God's redeeming love. I think he is pointing to the reality that he had shown his Passover love, his redeeming love in the past, he is going to show his redeeming Passover love now, and he's going to show it in the future too? Interesting. 
Now notice what it doesn't say. I earnestly desire to eat the Passover meal with you because this is the last time I'll eat the Passover meal with you. He doesn't say that. No, in fact, he implies he will eat again. He also doesn't say, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover meal because I'm changing things up and it's going to be replaced by a different meal called the Lord's Supper. It doesn't say that either, does it? No. In fact, he says, he implies that there's a future fulfillment of this celebration coming in the kingdom. So the Lord's Supper does not replace the Passover. That's an interesting thought. That is a very, very interesting thought. Now, I know some of you are, oh, man, Pastor Mike and his dispensationalism is popping out again. No, I promise. I'm just reading the text for what it says. Look, I struggle with this all week. Either he's going to eat this Passover meal again or not. It either means that or it doesn't. I think he's going to eat it again. I know. What? That means there'll be a sacrifice, right? Why will there be a sacrifice? Wait! Hebrews, Pastor Mike. Hebrews, Pastor Mike. No more sacrifices. No more sacrifices. Can't have any more sacrifices. Well, how's he going to celebrate the Passover meal without a sacrifice? How, where's the lamb going to be in this kingdom that he's going to eat this with them? Then, how, where? I say, read your Bibles. Not going to explain all that. See, again, I told you, I'm just giving you just a little glimpse. Go study your Bibles. So, I'm sorry. You can tell I didn't get much sleep last night. I enjoy myself, can you tell? I love the Word. I love Christ. He is so good. So how does this answer why he is so eager to eat this meal with him? I think it answers it because he reveals in this meal, celebrating something old, establishing something new, and anticipating something in the future. That's what the whole meal's about. That meal's all about celebrating something old, establishing something new, and anticipating something in the future. And ladies and gentlemen, I believe to a degree we can do the same thing in the Lord's Supper for us today. We can see what He's done, what He's going to do, doing, and what He's going to do. Look, eating it was important at the moment. He would stop eating it for a time, is the way it says in verse 16. And he would eat it again at some point in the future. The celebration of the old meal was important to him because it pointed to his redeeming love in the past. The establishment of the new meal was important to him because it pointed to his present redeeming love, which he was going to die the next day for, to redeem. And the anticipation of a future meal was important to him also because it pointed to his final redeeming love where the already not yet will happen. And we will be redeemed And there will be a kingdom established. Jesus and the disciples' preparation in the Passover meal had three components to it. And all three components pointed to Jesus' redeeming love for his own. 
Jesus longed to eat this meal with them because this meal revealed His redeeming love for His disciples. Celebrating something old, establishing something new, and anticipating something in the future. Let's look. First, celebrating something old. The Passover. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Passover, as we read in Exodus 12 in our Old Testament reading, was a key point in the history of Israel. You remember it? Y'all remember the story, right? Before the last of the plagues, where all the firstborn were to die, God establishes this meal, and that month was the first month of the Jewish calendar. On the tenth day of that month, what was supposed to happen? They were supposed to, all the families were supposed to go and pick out a lamb. And they were supposed to bring that lamb into their house. I want you to think about that. How would that go over with you if you had children? You bring a lamb into your house on the 10th, and then you slaughter it on the 14th. That would be a bad week in the house, wouldn't it? I love this lamb! What did this lamb ever do to you, Daddy? The end of the week. Come on, son, we're going to the temple. The high priest is going to slit his throat. That's exactly how it would have been. Very graphic, wouldn't it? What did the lamb do to you, daddy? Son, we're doing this so that God will pass over us and his judgment on this land. An innocent will die. It's pointing forward, isn't it? It's pointing beautifully. What a glorious God. What an amazing God. And what happened? On the Monday, uh, the Monday of the Passover week, what happens? The lamb is presented. Thousands of years later, Jesus walks in and everybody says... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Bind the sacrifice to the cords of the altar. That's Psalm 118 saying, this one is going to die. Wow. You see it? It's like, look, this is what God's redeeming love was like. And it was pointing forward to the redeeming love of me here today. Let's celebrate the Passover because that's what I'm going to ultimately fulfill here. I'm going to show you. There's this near and far component again. I said this. We've gone over it. We saw it in Luke 21. We've seen it, haven't we? There's near and far components of God's fulfilling things. You have the old Passover meal and they would celebrate this for thousands of years. And it was always pointing to what? The Passover lamb to come. The Passover lamb to come. Pointing forward to that. All to show, about, show the people of Israel his glorious good and his glorious redeeming love. This was truly a night when Jesus begins to eat this meal and he starts to talk about the fulfillment of the Old Testament and how he is the Lamb. So God's great deliverance of Israel and the meal God established was one big, huge spotlight pointing forward to God's redeeming love in the person and work of Jesus himself. Now, do you notice that Luke includes a cup before the bread and the Lord's Supper? This is really confusing. 
right? You got a cup, and then you got a bread, and then you got a little bit of cup. Well, that usually in our Lord's suppers, that doesn't happen, except last time. Last time I gave the cup out before the bread. It was a mistake. But why? Why did he do it this way? Well, because it was part of the Passover meal. In verses 17 and 18, he's describing the Passover meal. This is the past aspect. He's looking back at this point. He's talking about that first cup, which is the cup of blessing and praise to God for his deliverance. Luke's record or records this and shows the importance of something old. Notice Jesus is, it says there for, it says, he gave thanks in verse 17. It says, and when he had taken a cup and gives th- given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. Now, again, this is not the Lord's Supper cup. This is the one before it. And what does he do? He gave thanks. And what does that imply? He was thankful for something. What was he thankful for? What the first cup was pointing to, which was what? Passover. Old Passover. He's giving thanks to God for his redeeming love shown in separating Israel out of Egypt and taking them out of bondage in Egypt and setting apart his people and redeeming them from bondage in Egypt. So he's thankful and he gives thanks for that. By the way, that's where we get our word Eucharist because that giving thanks is mentioned in all three spots. Before the cup, before the bread, then before the second cup. Right? Eucharist. It's another title for the Lord's Supper. It's the idea of giving thanks. So when we take the Lord's Supper, what do we do? We give thanks to God for His what? Redeeming love. We give thanks to God. So I believe this is too, this too should be a part of every time we take the Lord's Supper. And there should be people coming to the table with hearts of gratitude. Gratitude for the redeeming work of our Lord and Savior. Now notice also something in this. He says, take this cup and share it among you. This is where we get the idea of communion. The idea of sharing. Sharing the cup. That's where the idea of communion comes from. It's the sharing of joy, the joy of God's redeeming love. In other words, we share in that. We fellowship in that. We participate in Christ's redeeming love, and this brings great joy to us. Aren't, are you all joyful that you get to celebrate the Lord's Supper today? Hopefully. If not, we haven't realized why we're doing it. Right? We come. Yay! All right. Good. Man, it satisfies my soul that I'm going to take the Lord's Supper with you today. Together with you in communion. We come together to fellowship and share and participate together in reflecting on God's redeeming love. This is why there's absolutely no room for selfishness or self-centeredness in coming to the Lord's table, as Paul rebuked the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. This is a time of reflecting on the condescending God who graciously redeemed us and come together and share and worship together in His redeeming work. By the way, this would be the time where repentance would be in order. If you have bitterness in your heart with somebody that's in the room, please, you cannot fellowship around the Lord's Supper 
and rejoice in his redeeming love if you have bitterness in your heart. That doesn't fit. Do you understand? Here, have a sip. Here you go. I'll hold yours, spouse. Even though you treated me bad this morning. Even though you said that to me. Is there something wrong with this? Do you get what I'm saying? This is communion. We give thanks and praise to God. And we share in the redeeming love of Christ. God is good. He redeemed us. Now again here, it's interesting. Jesus both looks back and forward. It says, because he says, take this cup in the Passover cup, the blessing cup section of the meal, and share it. Because I'm not going to from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Again, He's not going to celebrate and take this cup, this Passover cup, until the kingdom comes. I'm not sharing this cup again. I'm not sharing it until the kingdom comes. Do you understand how this really does point to a premillennial view? If not, you need to just think about it. Let me explain. The kingdom coming in the future. Let me ask you a question. In heaven, before... The kingdom is established. Are we going to eat and drink? It appears that this is a kingdom principle. Kingdom things that are going to happen. We're literally going to eat and drink in the kingdom. The kingdom will be here. Now, is there an already yet, not yet aspect of the kingdom? Yes. There's a spiritual kingdom. But there will be a final kingdom on earth where we will celebrate these things again. Why celebrate these things again? Pointing back, pointing back to the Passover lamb, which is Jesus. Just like the ones previous pointed forward, pointed forward. That Passover lamb did nothing to atone for sin. It didn't. It didn't take away permanently sin when they killed that lamb. It pointed forward. Do you understand? And in the kingdom, I believe they will do it again. I know. This is hard to understand. But it's going to happen. I think. I really believe. Jesus is saying, share this Passover cup of blessing with joy and thanks because I'm not going to drink it from now on until the kingdom of God comes. What would the disciples have thought Jesus meant by this? Here's what they would have thought. You ready? Disciples are sitting there to get this cup. He says, I'm not going to drink this again until the kingdom comes. You know what they're thinking? Woohoo! Yes! Kingdom's coming. They're not thinking this guy's going to take a long time. They're not thinking he's going to die. They're thinking, this is great. Me and Jesus are going to be celebrating this very soon. We're going to be taking a Passover cup together. They're not thinking what Jesus is implying. I'm going to die. I'm going to be separated. I'm going to be rejected. Way off down the future, we're going to celebrate this again. It's very interesting to me that he's basically saying, I'm, I'm not going to have the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
share this joy with me because, what he's saying, this is wild. I'm going to die and guarantee the kingdom will come one day. And by the way, if you say, well, the kingdom happened right after his death, burial, and resurrection, he rose from the dead, why is it that in Acts chapter 1 they say, when's the kingdom coming? Is it coming now? They're standing there waiting. Where is it coming now? It obviously is pointing to some future. It's got to be some future. All right. Y'all get this? Some of you? Again, I'm, I'm giving you just, I hope, pray that you'll keep studying. Again, Jesus saw past his death to the glorious results of his redeeming work. I don't know about you all, but I have to confess, I don't think like this. I don't think like Jesus here. If I see pain coming, all I can see is the pain. I can't see the joy of the victory and the results of what God will do through the pain. I'm just, I'm stuck in the pain. How in the world does he get past the next 24 hours in his mind? How is he thinking way off there? Way, way over there. How can he think that way? And be happy. And be thankful. And share it. And earnestly desire to eat it with them. Kind of reminds me a little bit. It's a little off topic. Kind of makes it. I was at a park and was able to do a little jump off of a high, high, high dive type thing into some water. And I walked up to it and looked down and went, whoa, no way. Not jumping off that. That's going to be some pain. That's a long ways down. And I said, come on, Andrew, we're leaving. I started walking away. There is no way I'm jumping off that. That is high and it is going to hurt. All I could see was the pain. As I got, got halfway around there, I thought to myself, wait a second, people jump off this thing all the time. It can't hurt that bad. They'd be suing it. Come on. It'll be cool. I will conquer this. I'm going to do it. Come on, Andrew, let's do it. I walked back and I didn't stop. I wasn't going to look. I just said, I'm going, bye. Walked off, jump. Woo! And it worked. And I did it. I said, go on, Andrew. <laughs> Can't do that to my son. That's not fair. Reality is, Jesus saw the joy coming. He saw the joy coming. And he saw the meal for what it was pointing to his redeeming love, past, present, and future. And he wanted to share his glory with them. And as the author of Hebrews says very well in Hebrews 12 too, wow, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I truly believe Jesus saw his work to come as the far fulfillment of the Passover. So he called his disciples to celebrate the Passover with him. Now notice, there's an establishing of something new. Y'all having fun yet? Okay, good. Just a side note here, Luke's gospel does not give a full explanation of the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's important to note that much of the details of the Supper are left out by Luke because... They were already well-known by the Christian community. This part didn't need to be developed. You know why? 
because Luke's gospel was written around 60 to 62 A.D. Jesus died approximately 30 years before, which means they had been celebrating the Lord's Supper for 30 years. And he didn't have to give a lot of detail. And it wasn't very confusing to the reader. The reader would have understood, oh, okay, this is that, and that came out of the Passover. That makes sense. Whereas we are trying to figure out how all those things give it together, and he didn't give us all the details. But 1 Corinthians, Paul writes roughly eight years previously and explained it even in more detail to the Corinthians. So Luke just gives the details to progress the main theme that he's getting at, which is Jesus is revealing his redeeming love. So now we see Jesus took most likely the middle of the Passover and transformed it into a new ordinance or remembrance meal. Notice in verse 19 and 20. It says, And when he had taken some of the bread and given thanks, again, giving thanks, Eucharist, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We see here Jesus now moves to establish something new, the bread. He starts with the bread, again giving thanks. Now, I confess, this is really astonishing if we think about it. The bread represents his body that is to be crushed the next day. I personally wish I would have just thanked God for the common blessing of the Lord more often. I wish I would thank him more often for these ideas, the common things like life and health and family and food and provision. But here, Jesus does something that's shocking Astounding. Jesus gives thanks for bread that represents his death. Now, giving thanks for them or them giving thanks that he's given the bread, that makes sense, doesn't it? But why would he give thanks for a bread that represents his death? Only the God-man could think this way. He is literally saying, this is good. Thank you, God, for my death. Wow. How much does he love the people he's talking to? He sees the value of his death. How? The answer is, again, Jesus sees past the suffering to the effects of his death. He gives thanks for the bread that represents their way to be atoned for. The bread points to his substitutionary atonement on their behalf. This is the reason he thanks God. Again, if you are others focused, then even if it it brings pain to you, you will have gratitude in your heart. That's a wild thought. I want you to think about that. If you are others focused and loving others, if it means you're going to have to experience pain, It will be okay. You will actually thank God if it's going to bring benefit for them. How many of you think that way? Does anybody think that way? We naturally think, oh, yeah, I'm going to suffer today. Yes, all right, it's good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I get to suffer. And my family is going to see how good Jesus is and how satisfying he is even in the midst of suffering. Is this how we think? We do if 
we understand the Passover meal. And we understand the Passover lamb. See, if you understand who he is and what he's done for you, you will see how pain is good and how suffering is used by God to bring glory to himself and help me walk and look more like Christ and others see the glory of God. Did you catch that? Is suffering good? Yes, in the hands of the Creator. Literally something to thank God about. Now, I will tell you, don't rob God of this opportunity. Listen closely. When the suffering happens and you go, Why me? Oy vey! As the Jew would say. You are missing the point. And you are missing the opportunity. All of this is supposed to point us to Jesus. This meal is supposed to point us to the glory of Jesus. We're supposed to find our satisfaction in the glory of Jesus. He is our hope. He is our God. He is everything. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do is what the bread is supposed to point us to. And listen closely. The bread is all about pointing us to Jesus. It's not about pointing us to our good deed of taking the Lord's Supper. You understand? You take the Lord's Supper and you say, oh, man, I did it. Mmm. Man, I'm holy. You missed the whole point. If you think that any taking of this Lord's Supper is going to be something, ooh, I did it. Yay, I did it. I've now got extra blessings from God. He's going to pour out his favor on me because I just ate this. You've missed the whole point. The meal is about him. It's about remembering him and honoring him and meditating on him and what he did, not what we do. Notice it says, do this in remembrance of me, not do this so that I will remember you. How often do we think that way? I did my religious duty. I came to church. Now God will remember me. Oh, come on, folks. Jesus is good. It's about him. Beloved, we take this to delight in the person and work of Jesus, not to do some religious duty. I'm not going to get through all this. It's good stuff, though. Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Isaiah 43, 4-5. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. Just side note there, that is not talking about physical healing. Contrary to Joyce Myers and all the other word of faith people. This is arguably the finest doctrine in the entire Bible, ladies and gentlemen. 
the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he has done for us, taking our sin, the great exchange, plain and simple. The Lord's Supper is a pure gospel presentation every time we do it. It's what it is. Literally, why, by the way, you ever doubt whether or not the gospel is for the believer? Then why would he tell us to take the Lord's Supper over and over again? The gospel is for the believer. You need it. You need to remember. Because guess what? There are no sinless Christians in here. And if you think you are, you lie and the truth is not in you. As First John says. We need the gospel today, tomorrow, next year, all the way to glory. And we will rejoice in it there too. We all can see why the Lord established a long time ago for us to remember this because it's the foundation of the entire Christian life. Christ died for us. And then he finishes with the cup. Again, you know, I got to say this. Y'all are all right, aren't you? Everybody okay? All right. If not, you know, stand up, shake their hand. That's okay. Have fun. Here we go. Some of you have asked, why don't we use wine for the Lord's Supper? Oh, boy, why in the world is he going to step on that line mind at, at 12.15? Why in the world would he talk about that now? Let me tell you something. I'm not going to give you some clear exegetical reason why we use grape juice. Not going to find it. I really don't think it matters. We don't know exactly what percentage of alcohol Jesus used at the time. But, beloved, here's the main thing. It's not about that anyway. It's about remembering him and his blood poured out for us. It's not necessarily about whether there's a little bit of alcohol in it or not. That, that isn't even the main point. It's about Jesus. Let's don't even argue about that, okay? Who cares? Remember him. Take our grape juice, us overly conservative people, to a fault, maybe, and think about Jesus, because that's what it's about. He died for you. He shed his blood. The new covenant was established because and inaugurated because he shed his blood. Oh, folks, do you understand all of this? His death was the inauguration of the new covenant. And that's what it's about. It's about him. You know, in Exodus, when they, when they established the bilateral covenant, covenant between two parties, he sprinkled blood on all the people. Do you remember Moses sprinkling blood on all the people? Oh, that wouldn't have been a pretty sight, right? What was the blood of the new covenant? It's a unilateral covenant, by the way. His blood was shed. It's very interesting, ironic that the chief priest says, let his blood be on us and on our children. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to be able to get into all of Jeremiah 31 to, 31 to 36. We'll bring it back up next week. How's that? Ultimately, I'll answer that final question of the anticipation of something coming next week. That was called 
uh, a homiletical plane crash. <laughs> you know what that is? Homiletical plane crash. It, it, if y'all are wondering why I'm not... Um, you probably are wondering, man, Pastor Mike, you really should go work on your demon in expository preaching, not biblical counseling. I mentioned that I'm considering the biblical counseling demon at Southern. You're probably thinking you should do expository preaching because you land your planes at the end of the sermon into the ground. And I just said, I'll talk about that next week. Come back. That was bad. Just know this, folks. This passage screams Jesus redeeming love for his own. He loves you. Let's take the Lord's Supper. Prepare your hearts. Pray. Spend some time. Seek the Lord. And we will take the Lord's Supper.